This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode three. My guests this week are Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead. They are the co-authors of the book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Sam and Andrew are both professors of sociology, and their work takes a look at how Americans relate to Christian nationalism as ambassadors, accommodators, resistors, or rejectors. Through sociological study, they have been able to quantify some of the harder-to-describe aspects of Christian nationalism and also discuss why it can be helpful to distinguish Christian nationalism from white evangelicalism, even though there is considerable overlap. This conversation may also help you understand some of the people you know in your own life, how they relate to Christian nationalism, and whether they can be swayed politically or socially. If you'd like to support the show, please do so by telling people about it, leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and signing up for a paid subscription to my Substack newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post. Listeners can get 25% off a subscription by visiting the link in the show notes. If I receive 800 subscribers, I could dedicate more time to bringing you content and even expand my coverage. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain and on Instagram at brchastain underscore. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation. My guests today are Andrew Whitehead, Associate Professor of Sociology at IUPUI, and Sam Perry, Associate Professor of Sociology and Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma. They are the co-authors of the book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And Sam, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I really enjoyed uh, your book, and I appreciated the lens that you you brought to this topic of Christian nationalism, which is the primary focus of this season of this show, uh, Powers and Principalities. You are both sociologists, and I'd, I'd like to start just by sort of framing how you approach your research and why sociology is an effective tool in looking at religion. Yeah, I think um, one thing that I appreciate about uh, sociology and how we can study religion and something that, you know, we share with our students is that, you know, we all come to, you know, this a class that I'm teaching or any book or religion with kind of prior histories of our own experience. Um, but sociology offers some some neat methodological tools and, and kind of theoretical um, tools that we can use to kind of understand not only our place, in society or history, but to take a step back and, and try and look at a broader um, spectrum too. And so for me and my work, um, I appreciate being able to 
gather, you know, quantitative data to see, you know, something that I think might be happening, actually be able to test that and see, you know, do we see evidence of this across the population? Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to use that and apply it to my interest in this idea of the U.S. as a Christian nation, um, I think was really beneficial because there are a lot of history books, you know, writing, people writing on this, is the U.S. a Christian nation trying to say yes or no? And I think what, um, you know, Sam and I bring to the table and, and our book brings to the table is for us, it's not really trying to answer if that's true or not, but what are the um, the impacts, the implications of the fact that a lot of Americans believe that the U.S. is or is not a Christian nation? How does that structure how they see the world and vote, um, how they raise their kids and who they allow them to date or marry and all these different questions. So to us, it isn't as much about trying to say yes or no, it is or isn't a Christian nation, but what are the implications of this kind of widespread belief, um, mm-hmm. either the acceptance or rejection of it? Something I would, I would just piggyback on, on what Andrew was saying is, is um, and just the benefit of studying this as a sociologist or studying what religion as a sociologist. Um, I think we in the United States, we, 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 because we are such an individualistic society, and I, probably also because of the popularity of psychology and, and uh, economic ways of thinking that we, we tend to think of, we can tend to think of religion as kind of this individualistic thing where I have values, I have beliefs, it's my religion, it's my faith. And, and in fact, religion is fundamentally social. Uh, none of us exists in isolation. None of us were raised by wolves. We were all socialized a certain way to have values and beliefs and symbols mean something because they mean something socially. And so applying that to Christian nationalism it's really not just about the values or beliefs or identities that individuals hold, but what those things mean socially and how certain groups can try to institutionalize those things, not personally, but socially. Right? Like that's, that's really what Christian nationalism is all about. The end goal is to institutionalize a certain kind of Christianity and a certain kind of power for a certain kind of people. Um, and so I think, frankly, I don't think you could understand what's going on in the United States without looking at it, at least uh, uh, applying a sociological lens, not psychological, not economic. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's something sociological, profoundly sociological about what's going on. Right. Is religion something that helps someone form their identity or say that they identify in something, even if they don't uh, adhere to a particular orthodox Christian belief. Right. Uh, speaking about Christian nationalism in particular, mm-hmm. I do think it, it centers around identity, mm-hmm. um, who we are as a people. Uh, and so the word Christian is, is in a, of, uh, haven't said this enough in the book, but I think what we're trying to underscore in subsequent conversations is that the word Christian and Christian nationalism is really kind of a, a dog whistle. It's a it's a, it's, a, it's a word that means more than just Christian, and it doesn't just refer to like orthodox beliefs or that somebody made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ or is a disciple of Jesus. Uh, it, means, it, it means broadly Christian in a, in a very like culturally conservative uh, sense, and so it implies some political views and values, but it also implies, I think, racial identity, uh, and it implies nativity in the United States, citizenship. Uh, and so to say that this is a Christian nation, that has to be put in quotes, or at least an asterisk by that word Christian, to mean if it is a Christian nation, it means it is a nation for us uh, that historically belonged to us and should rightfully be reflecting our preferences and priorities. And that means 
Christian, broadly speaking, in a very, again, culturally conservative sense, but also white, native-born, uh, and all the things that go into patriarchal family, heterosexual, uh, mm-hmm. all the things that get wrapped up into that concept, if that makes sense. Right. What is the definition of Christian nationalism that you worked with while you were collecting the data for your book? Yeah, so as we started to collect data years ago and really started to see how um, powerful Christian nationalism is, you know, we really needed to work on what that meant and, and identifying exactly what it is. And so in our book and in a lot of our work, we really understand it as a cultural framework. And in that sense, you can think of it as kind of a lens through which People are, you know, interpreting their social world. Anything that happens, it gets refracted through that. And then as they decide how to act in the world, it, it gets refracted through that as well. And so this cultural framework is really powerful. Um, and so really what that is, is just a collection of, you know, symbols, narratives, kind of like the U.S. is a Christian nation. Um, so that narrative is really important. Um, different value systems, as Sam touched on. Um, and so as all these get wrapped up together, this cultural framework really idealizes and advocates for a tight fusion between Christian, again, as Sam said, in quotes, all those things that get wrapped up and what that means to them, um, a tight you know, focus between being Christian and then this national identity, how we understand ourselves as a nation, our sacred symbols, um, the things that we think you know, should be re- reflected in public policies, who can and can't be citizens or who can and can't marry each other or who's allowed in and who is not allowed in the country. All of those things are wrapped up in this. And so, yeah, for us, this cultural framework really is a powerful way to understand how people see these things, whether they reject it or embrace it. um, It can explain a lot about how they see the world. Mm -hmm. One other thing that you do throughout the book uh, is you distinguish Christian nationalism as distinct from white evangelicalism. Why is it valuable to do that, especially within the context of sociology, but also as we talk about white evangelicals and their political power and their social sway, why is it important for us to be able to distinguish those two different things as distinct? Yeah, we both agree that that's it's important to create this or to to acknowledge this distinction because uh, clearer definitions uh, and precisions with uh, precision with our language is helpful for everybody in terms of understanding the phenomenon that's going on. We were both, you know, I think dissatisfied with the rhetoric around post 2016. Everybody's reeling about what just happened. Trump won, and these poll results keep coming out saying 80 percent or 81 percent of white evangelicals. And so uh, that was the, the, the label that kept getting thrown around, white evangelicals, white evangelicals. Um, and so uh, after we dug around for a little bit in the data, we, we found out that it, it's more than just being a white evangelical that, that drove people toward Trump. I mean, we have to pick apart what it, what it actually means to be a white evangelical. Beneath all of that, what was really driving support for Trump and all of his policies and his brand of politics and the things that he really supports is white Christian nationalism because, and and we know that because once we account for Christian nationalism in our models where we're predicting Trump support or support for his various policies, being an evangelical kind of disappears. And in fact, we actually see the same patterns among uh, white mainline Protestants and Catholics. Uh, And to some degree, we even see it among more secular Americans to the extent that they are Christian nationalists in that they embrace these kind of ultra-nationalist conservative views, even as seculars, 
they still follow a similar pattern. And, and people and evangelicals who are low on Christian nationalism, it's a small percentage, but evangelicals who are low on Christian nationalism don't support Trump or his policies. And so just acknowledging the fact that there are white evangelicals who, who go to church, read their Bibles, uh, participate and affiliate with these denominations that are not necessarily white evangelicals. Does that make them not evangelicals because they're not Christian nationalists? I, I don't think so. I, I think when we define our terms. So if, if we define an evangelical as somebody who holds uh, particular theological beliefs about the inerrancy of the Bible, the importance of having a born again experience, the importance of impacting your world with the gospel, I mean, those, those kinds of things, um, then I would say that being an evangelical doesn't have to mean being a Christian nationalist. But I, I do want to say that and acknowledge because I don't want to let white evangelicals off the hook here. Because in our book, we show that about 75 to 80 percent of white evangelicals are either friendly to uh, Christian nationalism, that group that we call accommodators, mm-hmm. or they are ambassadors of Christian nationalism, the, the true believers. And that's about, again, like 75, 80 percent. And so, like you said, Blake, there would be pretty tightly overlapping circles when we're looking at we're, we're looking at Christian nationalism generally and white evangelicals. But I, I really do. I think something that we've tried to do is we want to push pollsters, journalists, uh, scholars uh, into using more precise language, talking about the white Christian nationalism, rather than just saying all evangelicals are kind of, they just think this way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to follow up with that, I think that precision is helpful to really get a handle on what is actually happening. Because if we just say right. 80% of white evangelicals Um, We miss the high numbers of white mainline, as Sam said, and white Catholics that were strongly in support of Trump if they were also ambassadors. So when we lay out, you know, on Christian nationalism, our four groups, which I guess, you know, we can explain what those are maybe in a second. But if you have a white mainliner who is an ambassador, so strongly embracing Christian nationalism, and you have a white Catholic who is an ambassador they look exactly the same as white evangelicals. So those denominational differences uh, really disappear and they look much more different than a white mainline, white evangelical or white Catholic who rejects Christian nationalism. And so this white Christian nationalism really runs through these denominational categories. And so to really understand that support and, and what that base looks like or these Americans that you know, are voting for or supportive of these policies. I think we really have to talk in terms, like Sam said, of Christian nationalism and white Christian nationalism as this culture that has built up around these white Christian spaces. And so it isn't just evangelicals, it's mainline and Catholics too. It's been, it's kind of been embedded and important and infiltrated, I guess, those spaces as well. And Um, So I think that really helps us see that it's a larger issue than just, you know, one group, which, again, we don't want to let off the hook um, or say, well, it's not being white evangelical. This this cultural framework is rampant within it, um, but it's broader than that, too. Mm -hmm. That's right. And and also just to follow I mean, just to follow up, I love what Andrew was saying about we without that precision, we miss a lot of stuff that's going on. Uh, And he was Andrew was speaking broadly across like all of these white Christian traditions and even broader than that. But I think we, we also even miss what's going on within white evangelicalism. So uh, I, I think we, I mean, it, I get it. Like there's a temptation to kind of just say like, hey, white evangelicals have decided to double down on this Christian nationalism thing. But I, I do think there is evidence to suggest that white evangelicalism itself is being pulled apart by these kinds of issues, uh, that there are 
there are prominent uh, thought leaders within white evangelicalism, scholars, uh, professors of history, uh, people who have a voice um, going against the dominant white evangelical understanding of race and racial justice, uh, uh, understandings of gender and how that gets played out. And I think uh, with that tangled up in that is Christian nationalism. And so if we just kind of say white evangelicals as if it's this monolithic thing, I think we, we also miss some really, uh, I think, interesting and profound transitions that are taking place within that group itself. Right. Yeah, and I appreciate you you both going into such detail. I, to me, this is something that that scholars have been discussing for decades, right? How do you define evangelical? Whether you use the cultural identity markers that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, or you use something more academic like the Bebbington Quadrilateral, and right. you try to define it based on a set of theological beliefs that a lot of evangelicals, they don't even know what the Bebbington quadrilateral is. They don't know about conversionism and crucicentrism and and the two others that, that escape me in the moment here. Like, that's not a priority for them. Uh, the reason why I think it was important to untangle that here in our conversation is, is that I think that a lot of evangelicals that do have cultural prominence, they sometimes use like no true Scotsman type of argument in order to try to distance themselves from criticism of the Christian nationalist aspects of white evangelicalism itself, uh, or to try to deflect that criticism as well and say, and um, I'm lots of people who have had lived experience in evangelicalism can know that like, um, you know, they they will be denied three times. Like they it's just just like uh, if they move beyond the bounds of something that's acceptable within their group. Andrew, you mentioned the different types of four Americans that you identify as the primary types of categories in which people uh, fall into in your data. In your book, you you describe people's relationship to Christian nationalism as them being either ambassadors, accommodators resistors or rejectors. So tease out for us what those terms mean for you and for your, for your investigation into how people relate to Christian nationalism. Yeah. So the, the four groups, you know, taking one step back, you know, when we um, give our surveys to, you know, nationally representative samples of Americans, we ask them six questions that have to do with how they see religion intersecting in the public sphere um, sometimes using Christianity, sometimes just religion or, you know, how they think God relates to the U.S. And as they answer these questions, we're able to combine those answers together to create a scale, which is a Christian nationalism scale that goes from zero to 24. So if you strongly agree with some of these questions we ask, like the federal government should advocate Christian values or the success of the United States as part of God's plan, if you strongly agree with that, you get a four. So if you get, you know, four, you, if you score a four on these six questions, you're a 24. So that's the upper bound. And then if you disagree with all of them, you're a zero. But that can be kind of, um, you know, academic and just hard to really talk about in terms of where Americans are. And so we came up with these four groups. And so the rejectors are those that score from a zero to right around a five or so. And so they're at the lower end of the scale. And so they, as their name suggests, they reject um, Christian nationalism or any um, way that, you know, Christianity should be privileged in the public sphere. Um, they are adamantly against it. And this group, you know, is a little over 20 percent, almost 25 percent. 
um, of the population. Then we have resistors, and this group um, is about that same size, just a little bit larger than rejectors. So together, Americans that at least are hesitant about Christian nationalism, like resistors, they you know, maybe not completely rejecting of it, but they don't really like a tight interwoven, um, you know, relationship between Christianity and, and public policies and, and national identity. Um, if we combine them with rejectors, they're a little under 50% of the population total. Then on the other side, from the mean of that scale um, up, we have accommodators. And so accommodators are those that see a positive um, aspect of Christianity in the history of the U.S. or even in the public policies and how we understand ourselves today, but they aren't um, wholesale embracing it. Accommodators might think, you know, Christianity is good, but it shouldn't be placed above maybe other religions um, or at the detriment of, of other religious faiths. But they definitely think Christianity should play a public role. And then at the upper end, we have ambassadors. And this group um, is just over 20% of the population and accommodators are the largest. So they're about a third, they're a little over 30%. So taken together, accommodators and ambassadors are right at and a little over 50% of the US population. And so these ambassadors are kind of our true believers. They strongly embrace Christian nationalism. They wanna see Christianity privileged not just, you know, maybe a, a, a religion that has a say among others, but it is the religion that has the most sway within um, our public life and in our culture. And so it is the smallest group. Ambassadors are the smallest group. And we found that over the last decade, they are getting smaller, um, but they're extremely, uh, they, they embrace it strongly. And that will continue to kind of highlight to them how they are a minority that needs to stay strong. And so even if they're shrinking, they're going to be um, really important as we try to understand, um, you know, politics and public policy and all those things in the future. Mm. Uh, and I think that's, this has been a really helpful, we, we describe them as orientations to Christian nationalism. And something we try to underscore is that like all of us are dealing with Christian nationalism. It's not just like, uh, the, the, the study isn't just about like how people who are interested in that topic are described, but like all of us have views about religion's relationship to the public sphere. Um, and so all Americans, we would say, kind of fall along this, this spectrum. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, even though we, we designed these four categories, and this was Andrew's innovation, but even though uh, we came up with these four categories, uh, they actually are really different from one another. Like oftentimes when we're measuring how people think about how Christian nationalism relates to various attitudes like gun control or uh, building a border wall or military spending, uh, accommodators are different from resistors and, you know, like, and uh, ambassadors are different from accommodators and they all have, it, it just, it really shapes profoundly how people uh, view these things. Mm -hmm. What sort of patterns did you see within within the data relative to education? Um, was there something distinct in re, in regards to these four types of uh, orientations and their levels of education or anything else that you saw? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this was part that was really fascinating to us um, within that chapter where we're trying to really understand what are these groups. And um, regarding you know different sociodemographics, even religion and politics, we do see differences among these groups. So to look at your question specifically with education, um, we do find that rejectors tend to be um, 
have higher uh, degrees than any other group, even resistors. So they're much more likely to have a, a high number of people with postgraduate um, or at least college graduate degrees. And ambassadors tend to be the, um, you know, on the lower end of the education spectrum. So much more likely to have like a high school education, maybe some college, but they're they're pretty low on, on college grads or graduating college. Um, the middle two groups are really right in the middle there. They tend to be more, um, they tend to be closer to the rejectors in terms of education. So even accommodators, um, quite a few of them graduate college. And so in some sense, we could see or, you know, hypothesize that that might be a dividing line between accommodators and ambassadors. So they might be religious people, um, but they realize that we're living in a society where we shouldn't just have maybe one faith. And so maybe education plays a role in that. That's not anything we've tested, but um, so I think education does play a role in, in kind of um, dividing these groups. Um, but yeah, we, we look at a number of other demographic categories. So I don't know if there's others that you're interested in, but. Yeah. So what about church and religious service attendance? Is that an indicator of one of these orientations or relationships? Yeah, it really is. Um, so uh, ambassadors, so those that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, they are the most religious group. Um, they're the ones that are attending the most. They will have, um, you know, they will pray the most out of these other groups, have very literal views of the Bible. Um, you know, belief in God is the highest um, among all the different groups. Um, but I think the key point for us, too, is that uh, religion isn't absent from rejectors. So we have rejectors that believe in God, believe in a higher power, that attend church. Now it is at much lower levels, but it isn't as though we can look at one, you know, religion variable like attendance or even evangelical Protestantism and say that again, those are all of our ambassadors or those, you know, not doing any of that means you're a rejector. Um, so we see it represented across these groups. And, and I think that's the really powerful part too, where when we look across regions of the country um, or even religious traditions, you're going to see all four groups represented. Now, there are some patterns where, you know, accommodators and ambassadors are more highly represented among evangelical Protestants, but um, a good number, about a third, are rejectors and resistors. And so um, these demographic categories or even religious categories aren't complete overlaps. There are patterns, but aren't complete overlaps with Christian nationalism. And what about things like uh, beliefs around family and gender roles? Yeah, so so Christian nationalism, and rather than, you know, we could talk about it in terms of ambassadors or accommodators, or we could just talk about the ideology or the cultural framework itself. But either way you look at it, people who are uh, more affirming of Christian nationalist ideals uh, Tend to tend to behave and value exactly what you would suspect them uh, to, and that is uh, hyper conservative on every uh, point um, in a in a in a stepwise fashion. So, like the more you travel up that, I mean, it's what we would what we would call in statistics, we would we would call it a linear trend, a completely linear trend, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't wave, it doesn't you know kind of hiccup. It's it's as somebody moves up the scale on Christian nationalism. Uh, and they move from rejector, resistor, accommodator to ambassador, they're more likely to take a hardline conservative stance on, say, gender roles, women uh, belonging in the family, taking care of children, uh, homosexuality, opposing, uh, or LGBTQ uh, uh, issues generally. So whatever the conservative stance is, not granting uh, rights to go in the bathroom of your choice, or 
um, or uh, obviously not uh, gay marriage or civil unions uh, or those kinds of things. So gender roles, uh, family, also on issues of uh, racial inequality. Uh, and so racial inequality, you've got uh, strong support for or strong opposition to uh, immigration among people who are higher on Christian nationalism. Something that we're, we're seeing is quite relevant today, in fact, in this, you know, within the past week, events that have happened. Uh, white Christian nationalism uh, is strongly of the opinion that if African-Americans get killed by the police, it's their own fault. Uh, and that the police treat black and white Americans the same. The more you affirm Christian nationalism, the less willing you are to acknowledge injustice in criminal justice system, judicial uh, uh, procedure, all of those things. And in fact, the more likely you are to, to favor authoritarian means of control. My, my graduate student, Joshua Davis, has actually done a lot of work on that, documenting how the more you affirm Christian nationalism, the more likely you are to believe in crap, capital punishment, the uh, belief that the government should crack down on troublemakers more, that we need to punish federal crimes more severely. Uh, and so you actually tend to, oh, and uh, Josh and I also uh, conducted a study, not in the book, but conducted a study showing that the more you affirm Christian nationalism, the, the more likely you are to want to restrict people's freedom of speech. Uh, and so if you are a member of a stigmatized group across the board, any, any group, uh, they're very, very much of the opinion that, no, I would not allow them to uh, speak in public, teach in a college, have their book in a library, uh, that kind of thing. And so basically, I mean, it's, and this is why Christian nationalism, I think we have, we have tried to say, not, ex not quite as explicitly in the book, but in subsequent conversations that Christian nationalism is really, I think, and I, I don't want to speak for Andrew, but I will, I will just say, I, I think it is an ideology that is proto-fascist, that it, it is, it is on the road, right? Like it's not full-blown fascism. And I think in the United States, we have we fortunately have structures in place currently at, at, the, pre at the present moment, at least, that will combat uh, full-blown fascism. We have checks and balances. We have free democracy in terms of like voting for now. Uh, but you can imagine scenarios in which uh, those things are taken away. And then what we see is Christian nationalism really, I think, opens the door to kind of a fascist ultra-nationalism that revolves around white racial identity and also religion thrown into that kind of thing. And so that kind of, it, it will lead you to really understand that Christian nationalism plays a powerful role in shaping people's attitudes. And this is something I'll just uh, let, you, let you ask another question, but something I wanted to emphasize is that oftentimes when, when social scientists like ourselves, we find this, what we call a statistically significant association, we can, we, can, we can be prone to like make a big deal out of that, even though it, it may not affect much really. And there are lots of things that affect more you know, those attitudes than this. Christian nationalism is, one, is not just a significant predictor statistically, it is often the leading predictor uh, of these attitudes and values. So in other words, it's not something that just kind of contributes to these attitudes. It is one of the most powerful shapers of these attitudes. Uh, and so I want to emphasize that, that it's not just something that's kind of hanging in the background. It's, it's definitely on the forefront of, of why people right. believe what they believe. Thank you for all that detail. I do want to give a little bit of a timestamp so that people know when they listen to this, when we're talking. We're talking during the week of August 24th, 2020, and it's been a very eventful week. Every week in 2020 has been eventful. Relative to this conversation, as you mentioned, in regards to police violence and injustice, uh, Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was shot in the back by a police officer, and there's been subsequent um, violence 
from an individual from Illinois who traveled and murdered two people. I'm not very well spoken about this because it grates me and, and does emotionally upset me. However, uh, that is the context of this week as well as the Republican National Convention and multiple unfolding scandals around uh, the Falwells and Liberty University. I do want to talk about those things uh, in just one moment, but I do have one additional question before we shift to current events. And that is, how can framing Christian nationalism in the way that you have in the book and throughout our conversation now really help us uh, understand and be able to respond to it when we come across people in our own lives, even who espouse this, these types of beliefs and this type of worldview? Because I think a lot of our listeners probably know people in their own families or friends, or they know people who have these beliefs, um, but don't know how to respond to them or I'm not even saying challenge, but even being able to understand what this worldview entails and the political and social consequences of it, but even just being able to reach a place where you can talk to someone that, that has this type of worldview. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll, I'll take a stab and then I'll be interested to hear what Sam says. I think for me, I, at this point, am pretty cynical about how well or easily we can have discussions about this with those that maybe embrace Christian nationalism really strongly. So our ambassadors, I think many ways that that would take probably years and, you know, their social networks would have to change. I mean, it would take a lot to really put a dent in um, this identity and the kind of echo chamber and the social networks they're a part of. Um, because again, it is rampant within churches and political circles. And so um, all those overlapping networks, I, it, it would be really difficult. So for me, when I, you know, interact with those that I know are ardent Christian nationalists, um, you know, all that I can really do is just try to raise questions uh, about not only the narrative of the history of the United States, whether that can be useful, but um, two, if they're, if they claim a, a particular faith and generally, you know, claiming Christianity as their faith, um, trying to highlight um, maybe inconsistencies with that historic Christian faith from some of the public policies that they really support. And to be honest, too, when I'm talking to investors, that's not usually fruitful. It hasn't really worked. Um, but but that's what I try to do, to at least be a voice and, and raise those inconsistencies. And two, I think, you know, um, there's a lot of times where I want to kind of attack. But again, that will just raise the kind of, well, this is my identity and, and, and it won't really make um, a difference. I think for the accommodators, uh, I think there is more hope. And, and for a lot of them, I think they probably, the ones that we talked to even for the book, they don't really like um, kind of politically how things are happening and they're a little uneasy with it. But yet they kind of feel like, you know, over the way of the last 50 years where kind of being a conservative Christian means you got to vote Republican and, and what that means. Um, I think for many of them, you know, they're uneasy, but yet they feel like, well, you know, I can't not vote for a president that will give us conservative Supreme Court justices, you know, to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and so for them, I think just, again, trying to raise um, alternative viewpoints of, well, you know, lowering, uh, if you're really worried about abortion, outlawing isn't going to do much, but there are these other ways, you know, like 
easy access to contraceptives or healthcare that could do that. And so they might be more receptive to some of looking at it in a slightly different way that it isn't just be a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Um, But overall, especially from now until the election, I don't know how we really wind any of this back. And, and I'm pretty cynical at this point about how well we would be able to do that. And, and it's hard because we wrote this book and we want people to understand what's happening to be able and to have this framework to really make sense of this world. Um, but again, I think looking to um, trying to raise those voices of those that say, you know, with Christianity, it should be standing with the marginalized and, and Christianity in America does not have a good history of this at all. So I'm not saying it's ever lived up to this um, in no way, shape, or form. Um, but when we look to, you know, William Barber, or Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, or Martin Luther King Jr., um, Frederick Douglass, where they're saying, if this faith is true, you know, it should look this way. Um, so I think highlighting those voices and taking direct action to support those voices and, and those movements, especially as you know, white people and and how much white supremacy has been, um, you know, integral to the Christian tradition in the U.S. Um, You know, with Robert Jones's book, I just think, and others too, there's just a lot there that um, it's hard not to be cynical. So I'll I'll stop there, but it's just tough. Uh, That's, that's very relatable. (laughs) Sam, any, any additional thoughts? No, I would say, Andrew, that, uh, that I, I think ambassadors, there's just not enough time. Um, one of the things, uh, but I think accommodators are movable. I think they are, like especially like white accommodators who are ambivalent about what's going on in American politics and feel uneasy about Trump. And they acknowledge that uh, his behavior uh, and many of his policies are so inconsistent with what uh, traditionally is understood as, as kind of Christian ethics and uh, values. Um, I think they can be persuaded. And I think you do that, just what Andrew was saying, by elevating uh, prophetic voices, uh, by pointing out the inconsistencies, um, by exposing them to to different sources. And I think one of the the things, one of the reasons I feel like ambassadors are so dug in, uh, and and I want to say hopeless, but, you know, just hopelessly dug in. Uh, We don't share this data in the book as we just collected this recently, but I've got some data that shows the the leaders and news sources that individuals trust in the United States. And I compare, we ask all of these people, like, who do you trust? Do you trust, you know, uh, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, Breitbart, uh, Congress, scientists, the media, Trump, all these things. And Christian nationalists, uh, like ambassadors, trust three groups at all. Like they trust Fox News, Breitbart, and Trump, right? Like, and, and all these other Americans trust other people way more than these. Other. There's complete polarization. So you can imagine if ambassadors are getting all of their news and information from three trusted sources, Breitbart, Fox, and Trump, then me being able to even, we, we can't even have a conversation about when they say something and I say, that's not true. And they say, well, yeah, cause I just read this, like, and all of these, all, all of these things. And so at a very foundational level, we have different streams of information coming at us. Um, and, and, and so we, we, we can't even speak the same language in, in the sense that, uh, we have different facts and different kind of focuses that we put, places that we put our our trust in. People who are rejectors, resistors, and even to some degree accommodators are more likely to say, yes, I trust the CDC when it comes to COVID information. I trust scientists and I trust, you know, medical experts. And Christian nationalists are more likely to say, I trust Trump, right? Like, or, you know, and, and so as insane as that sounds, 
that's the kind of thing that we're we're grappling with, right? So um, I am not optimistic for a variety of kind of structural and cultural reasons that we can persuade ambassadors from moving from Team Trump or or from just like moving on these issues. Uh, but I do feel like there has been some movement. I, I'm okay saying it now. I think there has been some movement among accommodators. And I think we would be wise to try to figure out what moves the needle there and try to try to try to try to approach that right. group. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that the information ecosystem that someone is in will absolutely tailor someone's someone's responses to current events because they're presented to them in such different ways. Um, it's been very evident in thing in the way that Fox News has main figureheads like Tucker Carlson have responded to the shooting of Jacob Blake this this week, um, very blatantly biased in favor of the shooter. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, in favor of in favor of the police and in the initial response, and then the um, the person charged with murder for murdering two other people that were protesting. Let's shift to current events and talk about a couple of uh, a couple of things that have happened this week. One ad, I want to start actually with an ad because I think it plays into those accommodators that you think might be movable. We saw one political ad from Re- Republican voters against Trump with that featured Elizabeth uh, Newman. She was a high-ranking member of the Department of Homeland Security and she stars in this role in this ad and leads with saying that she is first and foremost a Christian. Do you think that this sort of messaging is tailored to those accommodators that might be swayed? And what are your thoughts on the way we are seeing some of this types of campaigns tailored to Christians and trying to peel them off from voting again for Trump? Yeah, I, I think it plays on uh, tribalism. Uh, so I think it's a, just, just what you asked about at the beginning of the show, Blake, is, is, uh, is this more wrapped up in identity than belief? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So uh, that lady doesn't say anything about what she believes. Like she doesn't say anything about what she values. It's implied from saying I'm a Christian, right? So like she says, I'm a Christian implication. I think like you think I like the things that you like, whatever you happen to, uh, you know, value or like, right? So it's, it's, it is a a deliberate uh, appeal to the tribalistic tendencies of human beings and to say like, oh, well, 70% 70 of Americans still consider themselves Christian. And so by this lady throwing that out there, they you get a warm, fuzzy feeling if you're in that group and you say like, oh, well, I trust you. Naturally, you must not you know, be lying or, or, uh, or you must not believe anything different from my belief. And so uh, I do think these kinds of appeals are, are blatant appeals to not just Christian nationalism, though I think Christian nationalism would obviously perk up at that kind of thing. I just think it's, it's, it's a blatant, like without any kind of substance whatsoever. Um, an appeal to I'm I'm a member of your group. It's like the uh, uh, there was there was some person running for like school board here in in uh, Norman, Oklahoma, where we live, and they were going door to door and and uh, and campaigning, and uh, and they they said something about like hey these are the values that I stand for, and they mentioned something about being pro life, um, and uh, and so my wife and I were listening to this conversation and we were like what why would pro-life matter at your school board? Like, it's like, what can you do? Like it has nothing to do with any of the, any of the, the, the things that you can accomplish as a, as a candidate, but it was an obvious, like, uh, Hey, I'm going to bank on most of the people that I'm going to, you know, uh, encounter in this conversation are going to perk up at pro-life. Oh, you're like me. And so you're going to like me regardless of the other things that I stand for. 
and that's the kind of thing. It's just a, a deliberate tribalistic identity play. Mm-hmm. So there, there were some other major news events, uh, notably the Republican National Convention. I, I do want to talk about one particular thing that Vice President Pence did that a lot of Christians noticed, which is that he referenced the book of Hebrews, but instead of using the name of Jesus, he actually replaced the name of Jesus with Old Glory, which is a reference to the flag. So would love to hear your opinions on how Christian nationalism is presenting itself within the the Republican Party, the ruling party in the United States, and their campaigns, as well as their platform. That's just an open question. We saw that just this week. It does not appear to have been a flub. He replaced the name of Jesus. You would think that someone who takes their, their faith as seriously as Pence claims to do, that he would know that he was replacing the name of Jesus. This is not a two Corinthians gaffe. This is intentional. So um, so I'd love to hear your opinions on, on how these threads of Christian nationalism are present and being telegraphed and broadcast within that context. Yeah, for sure. That was uh, pretty incredible um, to watch. And I think for, I know for Sam and I, at least, as we've kind of gone through the uh, primary season in 2016 and the nomination, and then now almost four years of this administration, uh, we're continually surprised at how blatant and also clumsy sometimes um, these things are. Uh, so Christian nationalism, you know, and, and using some of that rhetoric, kind of weaving in the kind of biblical scriptural rhetoric with kind of political and policy outcomes, um, it's nothing new. It didn't start with Trump for sure. I mean, this is something Republicans, especially presidents, have done um, and those that are running for president for years. I think what was so interesting about Trump is that he really didn't care to even try to present as a Christian, where others were like, I am a Christian, I know the faith, and also, you know, here's some Christian nationalism. He's like, give him the Christian nationalism. I could care less about trying to look, you know, one way or the other. And the fact that it was so effective really showed us. I mean, he was kind of the perfect test case. Like the individual doesn't matter. As long as they're promising power and privilege to Christians in the political sphere, they're going to eat it up. And so they've just leaned on it more and more and getting more adept at it, you know, through their administration. I think with what happened with Pence and what he said, I think that, you know, for most of our ambassadors from judging on social media, um, they are crazily there to me it's crazy but they're okay with it i mean just to weave in kind of they feel as though you know they hear these kind of terms used in church and that they know is a good thing and then to hear it from a political stage even though it weaves in these parts of you know this national identity and and the flag and, and all these things those are parts of them that they hold dear and to see them just kind of syncretize they're really okay with it it's just they feel as though we kind of touch on this at the end of the book but as we went to these God and country services at congregations, you get this feeling that, you know, they're saying, well, to be a true American, you've got to be Christian. Um, That's a part of what it means to be an American. But I think what's even more kind of unsettling sometimes, or should be more unsettling, is that really they're saying, too, to be a true Christian, you need to be American. And they're taking, you know, they're kind of ignoring the fact that this is a global faith um, and we're America is a very small part of it, but, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be an American. And so kind of interchanging iconography from of the United States with the Christian faith 
I think for them is completely, you know, it doesn't raise, raise an awareness at all. I mean, it's completely, they're to the point where it's, it's one and the same. And so um, it was a wild moment and we'll probably see more of it. But I think too, um, it kind of points to, to me, you know, whether or not this is a real kind of, or Pence thinks deeply about this to, to make that flub or to do it on purpose. Um, it raises questions about that. But at this point, I think they see it as one and the same and, and doesn't raise an issue for them at all. Yeah. Uh, you've given us a, a lot of detail about the last few years and how, and also just how people in this present moment relate to Christian nationalism regardless of their denomination what do you what do you think is the next step in tracking these developments where is your research leading you um i mean it's it's really hard to think past november i think for any of us just trying trying to even looking up to november and maybe a little beyond what's sort of next for the type of research that that you're conducting and investigating these trends and how can we continue to to see Christian nationalism play a role in our society. Like the sort of counterpoint to the Republican convention was last week's Democratic convention, which also had a lot of appeals to faith and appeals to God, but it did seem mostly absent from this sort of American exceptionalism and and this type of Christian nationalism, which is so heavily partisan here in the United States. What are your thoughts about investigating these things uh, goes next and what we can learn and and really try to prepare ourselves for uh, the type of polity that we might have in 2021. Right. Yep. So I think uh, there's a couple of things that we're looking into and, and want to make sure that we're expanding on and tracking. One is, is, is actually just studying this over time. Um, one of the reasons we were able to write a book about this and, and, and publish it in 2020 is because uh, it wasn't until recently that we were actually trying to get some numbers on this thing uh, that, that people have been writing, historians have been writing great books on religious nationalism for a long time. Uh, and especially, I think, within the last 10 years, there have been a number of great volumes that, that benefited our research uh, uh, immensely. But nobody's been able to quantify, okay, what exactly are we measure when we're talking about Christian nationalism? How do we measure such a thing? How do we define it? Um, how, what's the scope? I mean, that's all the things that we tried to contribute in our book. But we're using recently collected data, and the oldest data that we have that actually really gives us the best vision of this is about 2007, the mid-2000s, where we're using this first Baylor Religion Survey. And we have since collected subsequent waves, and we're going to continue to do so in the future to really see, okay, how does this, how does this play out as, as demography kind of works its magic, and people get older, and newer cohorts replace older cohorts, like younger Americans replace older ones as they die off. Um, where does Christian nationalism go? It's, it's, it's incredibly important that we try to track um, how things like age and period of time shape this ideology because we need to know if this is something that is like self-replenishing, like a new, as Americans get older, they start to embrace Christian nationalism because they get more conservative, or is, or is Christian nationalism really going to die out as older people die out? So that's something we don't know yet and we really need to, to track because we haven't had the numbers on it. And that's the long game, Okay. Um, something in the more immediate future is something that we we admittedly don't uh, grapple with enough in the book. We touch on it. We have this chapter on boundaries. But what we don't do enough is we we don't explore how different ethnic groups interpret Christian nationalism 
and how it differentially shapes their attitudes towards various things. And so what we're trying to do now, and as we've got new data after the book, what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to, to, to demonstrate and tease out how white Christian nationalism behaves uh, differently and in some ways exactly the opposite as it does when it is held by other ethnic groups, especially like so African-Americans we use as an example. Oftentimes when, when white Americans embrace Christian nationalism, that word Christian means us and it means our privilege and our power that we have historically had. And so it seems to make them conservative and wants to make them protect privilege and power. But for African-Americans, when, when they hear our, our questions about Christian nationalism, they're more likely to interpret it through the lens of something that has actually never happened in the United States, but would be a good thing if it did, right? And so uh, you can look back in history at, at Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., even Reverend Barber uh, recently, making appeals to founding principles of the nation and even the religious founding of the nation. But they do it in a way that says, hey, let's live up to these ideals, right? We've never done that. We've always violated it repeatedly. And so when, when African-Americans internalize this Christian nationalist ideology, it doesn't make them more conservative. It actually, in some ways, makes them more like racially progressive, more tolerant, more open, you know, and so we're more into social justice. And so we've got to tease that out. We've got to, what, you know, why, why does this idea of a, a close connection between Christian values and the nation why does it work so much differently for white Americans than it does for, say, Latinos or African-Americans? It's something we didn't tease out enough in the book, but we can spend the next few years as we collect data trying to grapple with that more. Right. One thing I'm interested in, and Sam and I have talked about this, too, with others, um, and it gets to your question about what can we do in the future? Um, you know, is is the genie out of the bottle and it's never coming back in, or, or are there ways to move people? And I think, you know, for kind of as a methodology, trying to see what activates Christian nationalism, or are there ways to kind of limit it or tone it down and in, in what people are presented with. And so I'm interested in hopefully be able to collect data with, with some colleagues, you know, hopefully we can do this. Um, but looking at, you know, when people, we ask them, you know, these six questions and then later present them with, you know, a vignette or something that they're reacting to. Are there ways that messages are framed that really activate it or that deaden it or maybe help them open them up to, to different ideas? Um, so I think, you know, trying to think of if we're going to try and encourage a democratic pluralist society, some answering some of these questions and, and just knowing is it a foregone conclusion or is there movement possible? Um, I think that's a question that would, would is interesting to me and I think might be others too that hopefully in the future we can get to. Yeah, I really appreciated your book and the, the way in which it gave that hard data in regards to these, admittedly can be very sort of soft, hard to quantify type of questions that if you're in these environments, you know of these ideas, but being able to codify them and be able to measure them over time is of immense value. And again, is a good service to understanding this, this type of belief and how it relates to and poses a potential threat or a very real threat to democratic pluralism here in the United States. So thank you for talking to me about your, about your work. Where can people find the book or either of you online as well? Yeah, so um, on Oxford uh, University Press, their website, you can find it. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, those types of places. Um, and I think it's like 10 bucks, so it's like a couple couple coffees. Um, but uh, yeah, and then you can find me on Twitter, um, 
Yeah, and and Sam as well. I don't know, Sam, if you have other places too. Yeah, that's it. At Social of the Sacred on Twitter and Andrew, Andrew Whitehead on Twitter. Yeah, it's at, it's my name, but minus the A. I was very clever and made the at sign. nice sam andrew thank you very much for joining me today and talking about your work yeah we appreciate it thanks for having us that'll do it for this week's episode. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave LaFever and Jake Lewis. If you enjoy this conversation, please rate and review Powers and Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. You can also support the show by purchasing Andrew and Sam's book from the link in the show notes and by signing up for a paid prescription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Talk to you soon.